Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And uh, it's amazing to me how many wonderful people are in this uh, food business and how many wonderful uh, products that that, uh, food connoisseurs can dream up in the specialty food industry. And also the really useful book books that people write. You can't have an excuse for not cooking gorgeous meals. To start with, um, uh, somebody we've worked with for years now, uh, Joan McIsaac um, of Effie's Homemade. Um, We've talked to her many times. There's always something new and something wonderful in her line of biscuits. Listen to Joan. This is a fun reunion here. We're we're going to be talking to... uh, I don't want to say old friends, but long-term friends um, from Effie's Homemade. And we're talking to Joan McIsaac. And, Joan, we've talked over the years, and I've watched your company, Effie's Homemade, grow. And um, you you just won uh, after all these years. When did the company start? We um, launched the product in 2008. February 2008. Okay. So we're celebrating so, 14 years. Yeah, That's a long time, right? Now, mm-hmm. what had you been doing before that? Just just inventing uh, cooking recipes? I was actually, I had a catering company and cooking class company. Uh, eventually meeting up with my now current partner, Irene, um, we uh, launched this business together, which is obviously Effie's Homemade for a wholesale manufactured product. I was always well, we're referring listeners to Irene Costello, her partner, who was unable to be with us um, today, although we've talked to her before, too. And they make a yes. great team. Uh, yes. and everybody always wants to know who's Effie. Do you want to tackle that, Joan? I'll be happy to. Um, Effie is my mom. Uh, she is... Um, she came from um, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and, along with my dad as well. And um, in Nova Scotia, oat cakes were quite common and always in the pantry. And they actually have origins in Scotland because Nova Scotia was settled by the Scots. So um, we have a long line of this recipe. Uh, my mother brought it with her when they moved to Boston and uh, where I grew up with it as a child and was always my favorite recipe growing up. And I love many, it. many years I love later. Cakes. Thank you. And many yeah, years I, later. I, 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 had, I fell in love with oat cakes in England, you know, remember Peter's English. And, uh, right. and, and when you came out with yours, it was, it was such a miracle to have them so close to home. <laughs> I know. I know that they're, they're Celtic of Celtic origin, so. Um, yeah, I was just 
it, we, I knew when we wanted to launch our company, we were going to do a wholesale manufacturing company that I wanted to launch with my mother's oat cake recipe. I just knew it was special. It was simple, and it really um, uh, epitomized everything that um, we wanted to accomplish with our company, which was, you know, have a brand of products that's simple, clean, good, and um, wholesome, and, you know, not too complicated. So that's uh, the, the oat cake really epitomized that, and I was uh, fortunate to be able to um, have this in my background and have had them, and, um, you know, the desire to, to launch the company with my great partner, Irene Costello. Right. Now, now why, why, why not shortbread? Well, shortbread is bigger in Scotland than oatcakes, maybe. They are. They are. And I wonder if that's because of the way we grew up, what my taste buds tend toward. And mm-hmm. um, as much as I do like shortbreads, it is the shorter crumb of a shortbread that I'm not a fan of, the kind that's sort of like where it's a confectionery sugar kind of thing that yeah. melts in your mouth and... It's just the texture I'm not used to, which uh, the oat cakes are a little bit heartier, you know, with the rolled oats in it, and the original ones had, um, you know, whole oats in it. Really? So I, I believe that that, you know, Peter, it's just more of a matter of taste. Um, my opinion, yeah. I'm more of a crispy cookie kind of fan. Well, oh, you, sure, you sure. hit it perfectly with me because I don't have a real strong sweet tooth. So this was right. heaven to me, eating your oat cakes. Right, <laughs> right. right. And so not the, too sweet. Your company has grown and grown, mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, and you've never stopped. Still, you, you kept, you keep innovating, and yes. you, I guess I, I came across the fact. I mean, this is after having interviewed you before. Um, that I came across the fact that you just won. This is now, listeners, a fourteen-year company, and they just won a um, um, Specialty Food Association Sophie Award for Best New Product in their category, mm-hmm. which right. speaks a lot to how you've evolved and keep evolving. I mean, you you sent us samples of the walnut, the ginger, and the almond. And, um, I mean, I you probably don't notice it as much, but I've had more distance, and... You've become increasingly more sophisticated in the spices you're using, the composition of the uh, biscuits. And, and you also, mm-hmm. let's not forget, you, you describe what's in them. You, you don't get any, anything you can't pronounce, the r- real stuff. And you mm-hmm. also describe, like, what they go well with. So tell us a little bit about um, your, your, new, your new flavors. What's in okay. with those walnut, ginger, and almond? And also, um, what are some of the, the foods that you pair your biscuits with? Okay, wonderful. Um, but thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you like it. And um, it's interesting that you said innovation and um, come, keeping up on the market and what's new. And people are looking for what's new. And we, I'll, I'll tell you that, for example, the we came out with the three flavors last year, just a year ago, and launched them. And um, the ginger was inspired by probably 
more customers than you can imagine, Ann, who always said, I love your oat cakes. Have you ever thought to do with them in ginger? Have you ever thought? And, you know, I love ginger like everybody else, but what Mm -hmm. I like about our biscuit, our ginger biscuit, it really does have a spicy kick, and, um, you know, there's a nice black pepper finish with it, and we use these really great crystallized ginger pieces in it to give you that lingering ginger spicy flavor, so... A very but, you know, that's just so balanced is the thing that stood out to me because neither Peter nor I liked growing up ginger snaps, which we always had. You know, uh-huh. We never liked ginger snaps. But right. yours is very sophisticated and sophisticatedly blended. So it all kind of smooths out in, in the, the bang you get from them. Excellent. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you, Anne. I'm going to have to put you on my marketing team here. Um, <laughs> it's, honestly, I mean... How many cookies um, can I eat if you do that? <laughs> have you, <laughs> I'll gladly pay you tomorrow with some... Uh, so the ginger biscuit, what I still like about them is they're not too sweet. And maybe that might be one of the reasons why you like it. Um, exactly. We do balance out the, the – there are rolled oats in it, so it's very earthy still um, and wholesome. And there's beautiful butter in it. And so the balance of all of that, I think, just makes it um, a nice substantial um, biscuit. So um, that's the ginger. The um, almond with cardamom um, is a, it, it's like a classic – on a, um, the, the Swedes and the Norwegians use a lot of cardamom and almond in their cookies and biscuits and stuff. And I had a friend that used to make this um, bread every year at the start of our garden. And she'd yeah. bring it on the day we start our garden because I get a community garden. And um, we always had it. And I loved it. And I'm like, I, we should make a biscuit like this. And I find the almond is our most delicate of the biscuits. It's just it really beautiful layers of almond slices and just a hint of cardamom in there in the background so that it gives you that little lingering taste. So I, I, I do love that. Um, but, you know, we really and, fell hard for the walnuts with the, the oh, good. That one. Hmm? Excellent. Excellent. And that one was a tricky one, Ian, because, um, you know, we have another biscuit, our corn biscuit, that has aniseed in it, and, yeah, which I love, 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 a nice crunchy corn but, you know, um, we played around with the idea on the walnut um, with the fennel or not, and we did a lot of consumer surveys with it, and we sent it out to numerous friends, consumers on the website, on our, um, from our website, and we did a blind tasting with them, and we got their feedback. And I'm telling you, the, adding the fennel was the big thumbs up, and I was really happy to hear that. Because I feel like that was a little bit of a risk, but it makes it sort of like this nice, balanced, slightly sweet, savory flavor mm-hmm. um, with the walnuts and then the dried uh, cranberries. So, um, yeah, the and cranberry. that's the one that receives the award, right? Yeah, the perfect balance of that, yeah. too, that the sharpness, yeah. tartness of the cranberry. And it's yeah. incredible with every cheese you want to try it with. And that's that's what really, um, it's a great cheese pairing biscuit. So um, it, it was, I'm, I'm really thrilled that it got the recognition with the Sophie Award, which we're thrilled about, you know, and we'll show off. This was your first one, Joey? Oh, oh no. No, can, <laughs> no, can I? I you think we have a collection. 
We have a collection of about 12 or 13 Sophie Awards yeah. at this point. Yeah. There you go. Can't yeah. Wait. And the, the very first one we got in, and Peter was um, for the oat cake back in 2010, and yeah. it got Best Cookie, and we were just blown away. And not that we're still not blown away with each one, but um, it was really nice because I shared it with my mom at the time. And, oh, yeah, see, that's, uh, I was thinking thrilled. that your mom got to see that, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so he, both my mom and dad got to see that. So. Here's, here's the other killing, Tony. You can actually get the cookies out of the box without breaking them all. <laughs> we have, you like we're having a lot of trouble with products packaging. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know what people are doing, but people send us things. I can't even open them. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I know, um, I know. Pickles are particularly difficult, I must say. Um, we finally... Oh, have those... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, this is not just one brand of pickles. It's just like a whole bunch of them. I don't know if it has to do with pres- the, the technique of preserving or whatever, but um, we okay. found that we had to actually open the, the jars or the containers with a, a can opener to get the pickles out. <laughs> We broke. Oh my no, we God! Broke, we, we broke the lid on on one. We we broke all the lids because I tried. You know, my old trick is you spread the, the if if it's hard to open, you spread the lid by hitting it with like I have a meat tenderizer. I hit, but in this particular case, it actually broke the 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 lid wasn't metal; it was plastic, and it broke the plastic. Oh <laughs> so, my God! Yeah. It, but that was hard. And, and, I mean, I almost gave up on that one. And the jar didn't break. And the jar did not break. Only, only you are fortunate. Yeah. Well, but um, we you know what, Ian? I was going to just, I was just going to suggest. I think they have those jar openers. Like, um, um, there's a brand out there where, and, it, and these things fit over the top of the jar, and it gives you like leverage to open it up. We have three of those. We have three of them. Oh. I also have one that you just, it's the simplest thing, it's a plastic thing with a little lip, and, and you, you put it under the lid and you just break the seal by lifting it, but none of this yeah. worked with these pickles. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. We, you must we, have really we, wanted we that were, pickle. We, were, <laughs> we persisted. Yeah. For sure, didn't we, sweetheart? We took turns trying to open. <laughs> oh, that's just terrible. I mean, but there are other things like I don't know if you've ever tried um, getting buying duck eggs. The, the plastic containers they come in. The trick there is to open plastic shell. I mean, the uh, what do you call that thing? Clamshell kind of top, except it's molded right. to eggs. And lifting that without breaking the eggs. Fortunately, the shells are pretty strong, but it's always a hassle. And uh, I have, a, I won't name the name of the product of spices, but I, I can't figure out any way to open, to get the lid off of this thing. <laughs> so, oh, my God. But, so, but, I mean, it's been this whole adventure, and and, um, and that has to be a very uh, complicated decision on how you're going to package. Mm-hmm. And your packages are, are, are clean and, and effective, and you need kudos for that too, 
Chad. Well, thank you. And that's, that's our design team and our design guys. So um, that packaging, uh, we did do an update on our packaging in 2020, um, um, like the year before, right? Yeah, so 2020 we did the new packaging. Um, and we really love it, too. It's cleaner. It's yeah. um, clearer. It's not as um, busy, which is important. It's very important. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to see that a, a lot more people are, are paying attention to packaging, actually. Um, also, the, the whole issue of um, ecological impacts and stuff. We just received exactly. a, a bunch of um, chocolate bars, which used to be very heavily overpackaged because um, especially if, you know, if they're trying to mail them and, and the heat may affect the chocolate and so forth. But this, this I don't know what must have cost these people, this company, but um, we got this, this candy bars, the chocolate bars, and they were, they have recyclable, I mean, not recyclable, um, what do you, you can compost. Compostable? Yeah, yeah compostable, compostable packing materials in it. You know, it's wow. just absolutely incredible. So that's that's uh, very impressive. It's yeah, a very I mean, challenging challenging. Um, we're trying to get at least all of our um, packaging to that state, but it's very difficult when you have a product that is on a retail shelf um, in order to protect it from the environment and air and from going stale. So the majority right. of our packaging, our box, is obviously recyclable and compostable. Eventually, it's cardboard, but um, it's the the flow wrap that protects the biscuits inside um, is a type of uh, plastic that allows um, traps air in so that it doesn't. That it's an oxygen barrier. So well, let me you know, tell you what I really hate is if I got a package. It's packed with those styrofoam peanuts. I hate that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely hate it. Oh, I know. They stick know. to everything. You can't get past it. It's awful. Yeah. Listen, we're straying yeah. a little bit from the the cook the biscuits. Um, oh, I don't mind. What what unusual things uh, when you suggest pairings? You stray some from just the the standard coffee tea. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. have cheeses. Um, what yeah. else do you do? You, recommend to pair with you well we we're always doing things like um we have everything from our our biscuits are versatile so we're fortunate that we're able to pair with other you know specialty items like beautiful jams and preserves uh, dried fruits um you know nut butters oh my gosh nut butters or be part of a s'mores yeah 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 i hadn't thought about that people that write to us and tell us that they're, um, they always have oat cakes in the morning with their almond butter on it or, you know, oh, that's the, great. the uh, s'mores kits with um, their cocoa biscuits. Um, so it, 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 there's a lot of versatility, and um, I think cheeses is where we shine yes. um, due to that um, sort of that salty creamy on our crispy buttery um biscuit there's 
it, they just sort of complement one another, and they sort of make a very distinctive pairing. And I'm not saying that every one of our biscuits goes with every cheese. There are specific right. cheeses our specific biscuits go with. Um, and we are in a great situation where we're, you know, we're normally um, merchandised in the cheese deli area of most stores. And uh, so that gives people opportunity to pair it and share it with um, some fun cheeses that the uh, cheese manager may be sharing with you. So um, well, now, that how, is, how do you get these? I mean, you, you, you are in what markets, and, and can you buy them online? And might as well give us your, um, your, your uh, website, too. Web- sure. Um, you can absolutely buy us online. Um, it's, our website is effieshomemade.com. And that's E-F-F-I-E-S, homemade, one word. Yep. Homemade. Okay. Homemade, and one word, dot com. Yep. And we offer our full range there. And at the same time, we are found in a lot of um, specialty retailers across the country, Um and a lot of them are um, smaller retailers, specialty stores. Um, here in the Boston area, I think of like Roach Brothers and Whole Foods. But we also are in many independents and farm stands and cheese shops across the country. So, um, But the good thing is on our website at effieshomemade.com, we have a store locator. Oh, that's great. And you great. can just put in your zip code, your city, your state. Um, and all of the stores um, that carry our biscuits will come up there, including the flavors. Hopefully, the flavors will show up oh, as really? well. So, if you're so, a fan uh, of our yeah. right, yeah. So, if you're a fan of our almond, you'll be able to see what stores carry it. Oh, great! That's wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. anyhow, so what's next, Joan? <laughs> what's next? Well, do you know what's funny, Ann? Is we're getting back to, and I'm sure I'm going to see you there. Is the trade trade show season um so we have the fancy food show coming up in new york on june i want to say 16 17 somewhere around there and i hope i see you there um we will be doing our trade shows we probably have about four of those now that um, we're somewhat coming out of this pandemic it will be very interesting to see our colleagues in the industry um Regarding new products, we're looking at new packaging, new innovation on that end for right now. Um, our our main focus uh, right now is trying to really get some um, get those new flavors out in the market and across the country, like our other biscuits. Um, uh-huh. And that's it. We've been par- we've been um, collaborating with a lot of great companies um, on social media and on website promotions. Um, various cheese companies here, um, and a great this, uh, jam company out of Vermont. So we are just keeping busy, and keeping busy. How yeah. about you? Well, busy too. I mean, and so much has gone online. Our shift is a little different. Um, I think we're, we're sort of past the um, uh, celebrity chef phase of everything. I think we finally got past that. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and um, we, we just focus a lot to what you can buy online during the pandemic, you know. And yeah. um, and and I think that's a, 
a trend. You and I were talking about this. I think it's a trend that's going to hold. It's, uh, it's really easy to get into that routine of, of buying your groceries and your everything online. So, it is. Except for shoes, it not is. shoes. <laughs> not shoes. <laughs> I'd have to say, uh, you know, if you do collaborations, you know, uh, somebody who does a lot of collaborations, especially since you've been venturing into the the spice realm, I mean, which is very hot now, a lot of competition, but um, Burlap and Barrel, do you know those guys? I don't. I'm writing it down. You, you need what to look it? them up. They're partners in um, Burlap and Barrel, and, and they do single-origin spices, and they collaborate with uh, a lot of, of other um, artis- artisanal producers. And um, actually, the, the small, uh, distant farms, a lot of Southeast Asian stuff and African mm-hmm. and South American, and we've gotten some really unusual spices from them, like um, Peter's fond of... Um, What's that called? Uh, paradise? Grains of paradise as a spice. These are spices I never even heard of until I caught on to these guys. No. Yeah, look up their website, Burlap and I, Barrel, all one word. I love the name. I love the name. Yeah. I want to look it up, and I will. I will. Yeah, and, and you want to talk to uh, Ori, O-R-I, and, okay. or Ethan. Yeah. And they're, they they've done a lot. They did um, a, a, a whole collaboration with um, Floyd Cardoz, who unfortunately died at the beginning of the pandemic. And it, it, so, but anyhow, um, interesting combinations of spices. So I can hardly wait to see what you're going to come up with next. Okay. <laughs> I know, and, I know, Ian. There's always, but I, it, you know, aside from what we're doing with packaging variations, we are always looking at thinking and um, dabbling in in that as we go along in our our biscuit world here. Yeah. <laughs> well, lots of continued success to you, and it's been wonderful talk, talking to you. And you know, we're lifelong fans of uh, of Effie's homemade biscuits you know well, that. <laughs> well i do Anne, and i thank you very much you you and peter have been so supportive over the years and it's great it's it's lovely to speak with you and i appreciate the time um, yes. to be on the show um, we have another inventive um food entrepreneur um we're going to be talking to kate mcalear and her company is delightful. It's Bixby and Company. Not only is it um, a creative, inventive, uh, with whimsical titles, but delicious as well. It's chocolates. Listen to uh, Kate. Kate McClear, I was thrilled to find out that the Bixby and, and your company's name, Bixby and Company, comes from your grandparents? Actually, my great-great-grandparents. Great. Okay. I knew it was there. <laughs> so, well, you, I, I'm, I've been reading about you, and we've been nibbling on your chocolate. Just give us, our listeners, some sense of all these degrees you have. <laughs> I oh. kept reading. You're still, are you still going for a master's? I actually just graduated um, two okay. weekends ago. Uh-huh. Congratulations. Well done. 
Thank you. It was four years of part-time, late nights, long weekends. <laughs> and you look back and you think, how'd you do that? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thinking, you know, you, you're also running a business, which you founded. It's the Certified Women-Owned Business. Um, yes. And, <laughs> oh, and then there's such a great backstory. Um, why don't yeah, you tell on, us? Hold on, hold on a minute before we move on. Are the, are the Bixby's Irish as well as the McAleers? I think the history of the Bixby is English-Irish, yes. Okay, well, um, we talked about you, you're very well prepared, you're very thoroughly educated and agreed to understand um, the specialty food industry. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about um, your mother's influence on your, your starting this company. Certainly. You know, I think undergraduate college experience is quite formative and um, in one's life. And I was pursuing, you know, a very liberal arts degree, um, played on the first women's golf team at my college. And then um, my, at the same time, you know, my mom uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so that became just a big pivotal moment in our family life. You know, it just kind of awakened your thought process on, one thought process on food or, kind of the environment and so I was really turned on to the organic and natural food movement and and that became kind of the the problem that I wanted to solve with Bixby was trying to make organic and clean candy right and um and you also you subsidize good causes with your the money you make from this right uh, we do. We have an initiative with Project Puffin, which is... Yeah, I love that. I was um, just telling Peter about that. He's very fond of puffins, so I told him about it. He yeah, not only so, likes your chocolate, he loves your cause. <laughs> well, the, the puffins are an amazing coastal seabird here off the coast of Maine, and Project Puffin is trying to initiate the rehabilitation of the bird and um, they're part of the larger Audubon Society's effort to bring them, you know, back to living in the coast of Maine. So we wanted to create a series of puffin chocolates to sort of educate on their cause and give a percentage of the proceeds from those products. And what's fascinating is there's there's a lot of confusion between puffins and penguins. <laughs> puffin and penguins, they both start with P. <laughs> Well, the inter- right, interesting, right. The interesting thing is that one of the, one one of the big producers of paperback books in England there there are two lines, one called Puffin and the other called Pelican. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've never thought of that. Interesting. Tell how you ended up with all these different involvements and interests. In I mean, your motivation, your mission um, for wholesome foods is one indication of how you ended up in the, in the culinary sphere. sphere. But um, what, what other suggestions um, do you think influence your decision to start a chocolate in a specific company? Well, I think chocolate is just a fascinating medium through which so many things can be expressed or learned so, for example, I just think the 
the history of chocolate, for example, is just a whole fascinating and and history that I don't even know all of. I want to learn more. But I, I think the history, the culture, the art, and um, part of how it's interacted with different societies has just been really fascinating to me. And so I think it was just this amazing medium through which so many of my interests could be expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just sort of endless possibility. I think one of the big challenges that we took on was so we started as a chocolatier sourcing chocolate and then in 2018 we wanted to become the first bean to bar chocolate maker in our state and that you know entailed a whole other level of knowledge and research and development to process the actual cacao bean and that was a whole series of learnings unto itself and I think it's it's funny the commencement speaker um, at my MBA graduation that we just mentioned, he talked about lifelong learning, and mm-hmm. I thought that that was so relevant to what I've been doing unbeknownst to myself, which is experiencing <laughs> un- a continued lifelong learning, which keeps you active and engaged. And I think um, that's what chocolate has offered to me. Uh, well, have you have you heard of a book called The Chocolate Wars? I have. It's fascinating. Did you read it? I did. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. See, I, I, I might have known you would study that too. Too that you you remember the book was written by a descendant of the of the Cadbury family. Oh, did I read yes. that book? Yeah. We, 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 well, I don't know how much of it you read, but we did we did interview the lady who wrote, wrote the book. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it was, it's interesting it was, that all the chocolate people in England were Quakers, um, and and all the chocolate people in southwestern Pennsylvania are Greeks. I mean, <laughs> nobody seems to know why. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I think there's also some history of, I think, movie theaters and chocolate shops being next to movie theaters. Uh-huh. Well, then, of course, people want to eat the chocolate during the movie. That's the, the, the other thing we should not emphasize too much is that there's, there's quite a tie between the burgers of Bristol, who ran ships around the world, and the trade they were in, which was a human trade, which is not so elegant or sophisticated, not, not, often not, very, about. Not, not very nice. Yeah. Now, it's a complicated thing. I read somewhere where um, the, the chocolate um, was very elitist and wonderful when it was first introduced into Europe. Uh, and then when they got to be able to produce it at a lower price point, it became less desirable to some people. I thought that was interesting because it follows the, the whole other line of products that start out as expensive and therefore uh, sought after as opposed to more broadly um, accessible. So, but anyhow. Well, you, you know, you make a lot of products. Um, we do. Yeah, no, um, we we got the um, beer brittle and the white chocolate that you do 
a whole range of stuff. Tell us all the stuff you make. Sure. So we have a whole line of drinking chocolate mixes, for example. We have the beer brittle. We have toffee, caramels. Then we have our chocolate bars, like a regular tablet chocolate bar. And then we have candy snack bars and bites. Um, and then we have a whole line of novelty products. So we make a one-pound chocolate lobster, chocolate lobster. Oh, that's clogs. what I would. Yeah, I wanted to see one of those. I didn't get any of those. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> I, I, on your website, I saw it pictured. It's a lobster oh, and chocolate. Well, we'll, have to, we'll have to send you one. Yeah, it, it's. Um, so there's souvenirs funny, as well. You know? Well. We we are based in Rockland, Maine, which is the um, lobster capital of Maine, I think. Put a little yeah. asterisk. Maybe that might be contested by <laughs> some other cities. But the uh, the lobster industry is quite popular here, and we're home to the lobster festival, the Maine Lobster Festival. Okay. So I, I found this chocolate lobster mold um, at a, <laughs> at a uh, like a I don't even recall it was might have been a a business was going out of business and you could go and like bid on an auction for this uh-huh. and I saw the mold there and thought hmm <laughs> maybe I should grab that <laughs> and, and then we molded one and put it you know, on display, thinking it was kind of just a fun little gag gift. And they've become so popular, I had to get a whole new set of molds made by a mold company because these (laughs) these were old molds. And um, it's become one of our signature products. So you never know where an idea will spark and where it will lead you. You know, I mean, I I believe that Maine is the lobster capital we've worked with the Maine lobster council um that it's okay. a consortium yeah and we've done a couple of programs on Maine lobsters and my greatest surprise was um i can't remember the company which is a bad thing um that i can't remember the name of the company although i'll probably remember it before we stop the interview but anyhow um they shipped this company shipped us Live lobsters. <laughs> and I oh, thought, did. oh, this is crazy. I said, this is crazy. And I opened this package, and by darn, the lobsters were alive, and they waved at me like saying I had a really good trip. <laughs> so you had, so funny. To, you had to cook them yourself, yeah. Yeah, I did. I used to be able to do it um, really easily because I used to spend a lot of time on the shore. Various shores, actually. Um, I, I had um, a little bit of, of um, difficulty since I read that article um, by the guy who's dead now, the writer for Gourmet Magazine, about Consider the Lobster. Oh, Who was he wrote that? about the Lobster Festival. Yes, I know. No, he wrote about. about he wrote about how the most humane way, or is there any humane way to actually cook a live lobster? And what's his name? David Wallace. David Wallace. Yeah. And uh, it was absolutely an amazing, brilliant article. And um, 
the, the um, it, it was not the kind of thing Gourmet Magazine expected they were going to get when they requested an article on lobsters from from this writer, brilliant writer. Um, but it sure made an impression. I mean, not just on me, on lots and lots of people. You know, and they, they considered all these things such as... Um, should you put them in yes. the freezer to make them sleepy and do that? Well, I mean, it sort of set me back a pace, you know. <laughs> I remember once on Long Island, we bought a four-pound lobster, and we let it walk around, you know, <laughs> for a while. <laughs> and had a horrible time cooking it. <laughs> it became a pet, you know. But anyhow, yeah. We're talking about chocolate, not lobsters here, except you have a lobster, uh, a chocolate lobster. You had some other interesting... Uh, chocolate figure as well. I can't remember what that is. Oh, the lobster claw is is a peanut butter ganache filled in the shape of a lobster claw. Boy, I mean, you you really know what you're doing with this, and uh, you actually went out into the field to meet with these farmers, right? The cacao farmers. Yes, so I was fortunate enough pre-pandemic to travel to Haiti and Guatemala to meet some of our farmer partners from which we're sourcing our cacao. And it was just a really fascinating experience and one that was was so memorable because, you know, I think that there's sometimes a disconnect between maybe the chocolate consumer and the, the cacao farmer. So being able to articulate that story to our customers, I thought was just really important for us to establish. Now, there are a lot there are more people in the bean-to-bar business, but you, but you stress bean-to-bar as being something that you really stand for. I So, yes, I'm hoping that we can eventually make all of our own chocolate. It's going to be quite a process. But I think the bean to bar effort is um, is just a really you know fascinating experiment in craft food in, in America. You know, I think craft beer has sort of become every American understands, and I'm hoping one day craft chocolate will have the same kind of I don't know birth or uh, growth. I think that specialty coffee has had probably is maybe 20 years ahead of craft chocolate. But as we find more and more people looking to know where and who is making their food, you know, hopefully um, there'll be more and more demand for premium chocolate. Well, we've interviewed a number of them, and I have to say that uh, chocolatiers are among the, the most interesting people that we interview. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, we're actually going to be um, interviewing um, the uh, um, what, what Askenosi daughter now. I mean, we interviewed her father way back when, Askenosi yes. Chocolate, and and he was a high-profile criminal attorney, defense attorney, I think it was, and he yes. left that business and, and started making chocolates. <laughs> and his daughter's now in the business with him. Um, and we also we interviewed um, Chow, who was a chef, and then went into the chocolate business. Um, there, and I just we've interviewed people from Guatemala making chocolate, and uh, who else? Rabbit, lots of them. 
So it's, it's, it, it attracts a lot of really interesting people. So you must have fun at meetings. Oh, certainly. And it's really great to network and get to know other chocolate makers as well and, you know, bemoan equipment issues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> other, other challenges. Um, it's, it's a really fun industry, and I think that – it, again, that that lifelong learning. I think you could you can continue to learn about chocolate forever. Forever, <laughs> such a fascinating food. Now, talking about learning about chocolate, um, I was surprised that that we got um, white chocolate. I've never been clear as to is white chocolate real chocolate, cacao, and how how is it different from chocolate? Um, dark chocolate or even milk chocolate so there's um, the cocoa bean which has a husk and on the inside is cocoa nib and usually dark chocolate is made with cocoa nibs and sugar um, and possibly cocoa butter or an emulsifier Milk chocolate is the cocoa nib, sugar, milk powder, like usually dairy milk powder, or if you're going to do alternative milk, you could use oats or coconut, for example, lecithin, cocoa butter, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, some people use no emulsifier. So, for example, in our bean to bar products, we don't use emulsifier. Then you can take the cocoa nibs and press them in a cocoa butter press instead of putting them into the process of making chocolate, which is some sort of process of grinding grinding the nibs. And if you put it, put the nibs in a cocoa butter press, it presses out the fat from the nib, which is cocoa butter. And then white chocolate is made out of cocoa butter, milk powder, or an alternative milk. Vanilla usually is added, and cocoa butter, and possibly an emulsifier. So it's it's more the healthy fat part of the bean. Oh, it's healthier than dark chocolate? Well, I, it's it's the fat part of the bean. Um, so, and it has more sugar typically. So a dark chocolate is, you know, I think on average 70% dark chocolate, which would be 30% sugar, and then milk chocolate on average is 30% <laughs> cocoa solids. And then, so it's a higher percentage of sugar. So same thing with white chocolate. It's usually a higher percentage of sugar than dark chocolate. But it is still the the cocoa butter fat it's still, from the bean. It's still chocolate. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it's just sort of a different type of chocolate, yes. Sweetheart, so, you remember I, to, I told you when when I was growing up in England, someone introduced a, a milk chocolate, I mean a... Cocoa white butter, chocolate. a white chocolate bar called a Milky Way. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we have them here too. You have Milky Way in? Yes. Yes. In fact, the proper thing to do is freeze them. <laughs> I don't know why I come to think of it. <laughs> Everybody froze their Milky Ways. <laughs> the British, the British don't are, have, the British don't have refrigerators. So. <laughs> They're in the freezers. <laughs> Kate, uh, tell me this, and I've been trying to get a sample of, of red chocolate, and, and nobody's sending me red chocolate. Um, what is that? 
I mean, I thought it would be very funny. <laughs> oh, are, is that the Ruby Chocolate by Barry Calibo? Yes, right. Uh-huh. Right. So Barry Calibo created a whole new process. Who did? That I don't quite understand myself to make the Ruby Chocolate. I think that who, they're using who, a special... Oh, go, uh, Barry Calibo. Oh, Caco. I didn't know that. Okay. Okay, and, well... But they're not sending me samples. I can tell you. I'd love to see. I've never <laughs> seen it in a, in a chocolate shop or anything, huh? Well, I think it's gaining some popularity. Now, Bixby was innovative in that we made a line of smoothie bars, and our smoothie bars um, were inspired by smoothie bowls, you know, the popular trend on kind of the health-focused Instagram market. And so yeah. we created a white chocolate base but made with coconut milk instead of dairy milk. And with that base, we incorporated ingredients you might find in smoothie bars. So we do a golden milk, a matcha green tea, and we have a raspberry one where we actually use freeze-dried oh. raspberries. And the chocolate takes on the color of a light raspberry. Oh, wow, okay. There are white strawberries, too. Did you know that? I did. They're really delicious, too. They're interesting. So they're expensive. I didn't. I haven't had one yet. I think they are a specialty crop. It's something like $10 a berry or something. <laughs> Japanese market is big with the white strawberries. Well, I, don't, I don't know if you remember. One, one year we had a lot of particular weed. In in the garden, yes. Yeah, so you thought it was, and we, and we thought we and we thought, how great these these must be wild strawberries. <laughs> they weren't. Turns, turns turns out they're not wild strawberries. They're really the the nature made fake. Yeah, and and they're also potentially poisonous. So yes, <laughs> it's not healthy. Don't eat them either. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. So we we. we we got a lot of them growing, but we didn't use too many of them. <laughs> well, listen, we, we, you've won a, a whole bunch of awards, including the uh, the Good Food Award that uh, you just mentioned. And did, did you get a Sophie as well this year? We did. Our first ever Sophies um, came this year. And cool, huh? um, we won two for the Creme Brulee Bar and one for the Beer Brittle. I say, great. Congratulations on that. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, we're getting to the point at which we're going to ask, how do people lay hands on your your candy chocolate? Well, the best bet is probably through our website, BixbyChocolate.com, uh, for those new products. The other locations you can find some of our products are in Whole Foods in North Atlantic, so that's the New England state stores, Hannaford Supermarket, the Fresh Market, and L.L. Um, Bean Stonewall Kitchen, for example. But for the wow. widest variety, our website is your best bet. Okay, it's spelled Bixby. B-I-X-B-Y, and then chocolate.com. Chocolate, singular or plural? Uh, singular. Singular. Okay. And uh, and so you ship all across the country, right? We do. Well, you're on a, a, 
a you know, a really rise at this point in, in the in a busy industry, especially food industry, and in a in a big category which keeps growing. So I wish you continued success, and um, and and. And I'm looking forward to new products. How many new products do you plan on pushing out? We have some things in development. Um, I would say we're ever perfecting our products. Um, and, you know, the creme brulee and beer brittle products have been so popular. We're focusing on trying to increase our capacity on those items. Um, to keep up with demand, which is really exciting. Yeah, I don't know how you turn out all that you do, to actually, I mean, with all the variety you have. It's, it's a lot. Um, how many employees do you have? We have, um, we're trying to get up to 15 right now. We're hovering around 10, um, which is kind of the state, I think, of the, <laughs> the general market here with... Um, kind of the post-COVID world. It's, it's oh, been yeah, interesting. Wonderful. Um, of course, I think that the COVID probably spiked the sale of chocolate by 300%. I mentioned this just to give you an idea, listeners, of um, how how expansive these people involved with Bixby's is. Um, they're also... Their factory is located in Rockland, Maine, right on the, the coast there. And all the Bixby products, of which there are a gazillion, check it out on the, their website. Um, they produce them in a 125-year-old former ice plant located on a working marina, <laughs> no less. And, uh, and they're restoring it. It's a historic building, and they're restoring it. Uh, I just, you must have energy up the yin yang. That's probably because of the chocolate, Kate. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun to be part of the working waterfront in a way that's different. So this used to be the sardine capital of uh, Maine, and the ice factory aspect was part of the fishing industry, and and so it's fun to like make a food product in a new iteration here in the working waterfront, which is, um, you know, I think an important part of the, the local economy to have good food manufacturing jobs. So Sure. I mean, look look at California. Look at San Francisco. Um, amazing that they, uh, what they turn out, food products, especially food products from those old uh, um, fishing ports. Um, and I guess it's appropriate since fishing has been... The industry itself has been reduced, um, but I think that you're on a good track here, and I think that uh, you should be writing a book. <laughs> oh, <laughs> one day, do, do a I, chocolate I, I book. That would be really fun. I, I think you're right. I, I have to look into how to make that happen. Well, I think you'd have no trouble selling it because you still you're still studying it, and and there's a lot to learn. Well, it's been great talking to you, and I'm happy happy lobster. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I'm looking for that chocolate lobster. <laughs> we'll send you one. Okay. All right. Thanks for taking the time from your really busy life, Kate. 
uh, to talk to us about Bixby and company. Thank oh, you. Oh, well, thank you for having me on your show. I was really pleased. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and um, I hope that Kate remembers to send me that chocolate lobster, because I really wanted to see one of those. Um we're next going to be talking uh, not about the actual product themselves, um, but in the cooking and preparation. Um, Alexis Dabroshnik, I mangled that, didn't I? Uh, Dabroshnik is a, um, a, a food writer, a recipe um, developer, and she's written a, a book that absolutely should find a place in your kitchen called To the Last Bite. And trust her in getting you to have delicious meals for your uh, family and friends using what ingredients you have on hand and reducing food waste. Um, listen to Alexis. Yes. Hey, yay, yay. We're talking to Alexis de Boschnik, and this is her unbelievably the first book. It's just so thorough and so good. I'm kind of amazed. But it's called To the Last Bite. Recipes and Ideas for Making the Most of Your Ingredients. And in this book, Alexis, you are um, uh, countering um, the waste of food, which is uh, an absolutely, unbelievably large um, number of 40%, upwards of 40% in America, waste of food. Scary, isn't it? Now, you are uniquely qualified to, to do this particular book. Um, you've done a little of everything, which is another reason why I was so surprised that this was your first cookbook. Um, tell us a little bit about how you were prepared for this. Uh, you're growing up in the Catskills and, and your mother, who was European, yes. right? Yes. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. And, um, yeah, I've I've had... I think a unique background to lead me to this book. Um, I grew up in the Catskills. My mom is Dutch. If you don't know what the Catskills, what what it is, it's a region in upstate New York, an agricultural region. Before and you get to the Adirondacks, really, right? Yeah, it's about three hours north of New York City. And there's a real focus here on food. You know, a lot of people are growing and raising um, livestock and growing produce. And, you know, growing up in this environment, I really took it for granted and didn't really appreciate it. Um, but once I left and started, you know, going to, I went to culinary school and I worked in food media doing so many different things. I did merchandising and writing and developing recipes. I worked for BuzzFeed and did um, video content. And I really noticed that while all these places were kind of touting, um, you know, sustainability and that we're all trying to, you know, be a little more green in our day-to-day practices, um, people didn't really know how to do that. And I'm definitely not saying that I'm, you know, perfect at it and, you know, I'm not zero waste or, you know, anything like that. But I did think that this kind of background gave me, you know, the tools to kind of encourage people to cook more sustainably in their everyday lives in ways that felt easy and doable. 
right. Now, what was it in the family, though? You, you, you write a good deal about about your about your mother and yeah, my mother. She, you know, she's you know a self-taught cook and also self self-taught gardener. Um, just one of these people who's kind of good at at everything they do, mm. uh, much to my chagrin. And um, you know, she was very much, you know, kind of in this kind of lifestyle, but way before it was cool, you know, before farm to table and like sustainability were buzzwords, um, you know, she was doing it at home. You know, we had chickens where we ate the eggs and the shells went into the compost and the compost yeah. went into the garden where we grew the vegetables that we then canned. You know, it was a real kind of circle um, of life that she was, she was and still is embodying. Well, you know, I had a similar background to, to you. My mother was a master gardener, and um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, and and so, I mean, I I never knew anything um, other than natural or what we, <laughs> just real food, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Organic, because that's what we had. So same, uh, same. Yeah, I was like, wait, is this is this special? You know, it's a real privilege to be able to say that, but. You know, it I, it really was just the way that I grew up. Yeah. Well, we had composters. We had all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> and I really appreciate it now because I did not inherit the screen thumb thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 working on it. It's a work in progress. I mean, I, I had a garden when we lived in in D.C. And we had the, the whole first season harvest as an appetizer. What? <laughs> Oh my four gosh! Green beans. Oh green, no! Four, four green beans. <laughs> so so anyhow, but we're we're looking at you're giving us all kinds of tips um, and uh, creative, innovative recipes as well. Um, and you you give us a, a, your why you wrote this book. Then you also tell us, and I'm going to ask you to explain how should one use this book. Totally. Well, you can use it in two ways. I think the first is, you know, in a traditional way that you would use a cookbook. You know, you open a page and you say, I want to make that chicken. And then you do it and carry on with your life. Or you can do it in kind of this choose-your-own-adventure way and kind of let the ingredients guide you. So at the end of every recipe, I have notes on, you know, if you have leftover sour cream from this recipe, you can go to page xyz and make this recipe and if you have leftover parsley use it in these five recipes and you know you can save your shrimp shells for shrimp stock and use it in this recipe so you can kind of play along in that way if you choose now i mean listeners this is a woman who actually saves the seeds from her melons i mean that would really it makes me feel really guilty to tell you the no, truth. No, I mean the thing. Listen, I'm like, you know, not not every time. You know, I'm lucky to have chickens who love the melon seeds. You know, so it's like not every time. But I really did want to, you know, create recipes that, you know, people could get excited about. And if there was a little extra effort involved, I wanted to make sure it was worth that effort. Uh-huh. Well, you know, one of the things that came to light. Um, when you're talking about uh, not only just growing your your, um, your veggies, but regrowing them, I for some reason that's come up in all the stuff I read. All of a sudden, lots of times, 
like with the um, one of the things I was asking about rabbit with the uh, the the garlicky ramps ramps. Yes. Um, I I was noticing on these uh, food subscription sites that they were selling them with the bulb on. And I read, this is not right. It, they should cut the leaves off and that's leave right. the, yeah. And I never I, heard so, of that. It's funny that you said that. I, I have a newsletter, and I, I just wrote a whole thing about how to, um, you know, harvest ramp sustainably. Yeah, I just, what did I make with them it was so good? Um, oh, I mean, that. I think anything you make with them is so good. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I love them. Yeah, everybody does. I've been using a lot of green garlic as well. Have oh, you tried that? Delicious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what did I make with the ramps? Shrimp, I guess it was shrimp. Mm. With yeah, ramps and, and olive oil and something else in there. Anyhow, it was good. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really black good. lime. Black lime. Oh, yum! That sounds incredible. Yeah, it was really fabulous. <laughs> now, I was curious about how many people you regularly cook for. I try to host people uh, at least once a week, but usually more. I really, I really love cooking for people. It feels like you know, if we're talking about you know, love languages are very popular these days, and I feel like cooking is my love language. I mean, I, I it's kind of my favorite way to gather with friends and because I'm a recipe developer I get to test my work on them it's really kind of like two birds one stone situation wow so you mean people should befriend you because you're going to feed them (laughs) (laughs) good idea you could say that you could totally say that Um, you you also have appreciation for some of these things that I view as staples in the pantry and nobody else does such as preserved lemons (laughs) Totally, totally. I mean, I think that's, you know, my kind of ethos with these recipes, and you, I, I wonder if you observe this too. You know, they're pretty, they're pretty simple. They're approachable, and I really wanted to make sure that, you know, people who are more experienced could obviously make them, but also, you know, home cooks who are just getting started in the kitchen or people who are, like, a little more inexperienced or nervous could still make these dishes and have a great end result. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's been fun, too, you know, having friends over and they're like, wait, this is so good. I'm like, you could make this. And then they do. And they're, you know, they have a new, you know, recipe in their, um, you know, rotation. You know, what was it you were asking all of your uh, friends and acquaintances what what they mainly, what, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I, was I asked them what they, um, you know, what items went bad in the fridge. What was the, what were the ingredients that they always like ha- ended up having, you know, lying around that they couldn't like figure out how to use up, and that mm-hmm. was mostly dairy and produce. So that's mostly what I focused on. There's, you know, there's some other ingredients too, but you know, it's it's you know, you have that bunch of celery that ends up sitting in there for a month and starts getting really pale and anemic looking, and you know, the sour cream maybe you forgot about in the back of your fridge. And, yeah. you know, that tin of anchovies, you're like, oh, how am I going to go for 15 anchovies? You know, so so those are the ingredients I really wanted to tackle. Well, you you did that. You also do this kitchen tools thing. And suddenly I realized I, my um, 
my microplane has disappeared. I couldn't find it. Oh, no. It's my number one tool in the kitchen. I know. I mean, I always loved it, too. And I, mean, I made sure that our son had one and, and so forth. I don't know. I can't. I started in the midst of all this looking for my microplane. Oh. <laughs> I have not yet found it. So. Um, oh, that's so funny. You just me to find it. <laughs> like, like I would have a chance at that. Now we have um, we live smack in the center of the city, pretty much, and um, we had on one side we had neighbors that were very snotty to me about our Victory Garden. <laughs> They they had this um, beautifully landscaped um, garden and, you know, and regular gardeners and, you know, meanwhile, my mother would tear up everything and plant veggies. (laughs) I mean, I have a pear tree standing there. So they they went and they bought, they uh, built a spite fence or whatever you call that. Oh my gosh! That yeah, I know, oh. and, and then it fell down, and well, it's a sad ending of the story. We we never got along very well, so, <laughs> uh, but we always—I mean, I'm I'm at a dead loss without having an herb garden. I don't know what everybody does without an herb garden, especially oh, if you're know. living in a city. And it's so easy too. I think people forget how how easy it is. Well, you know, I never knew you could cut the bottom off a of celery and plant it. You know, I so I included that part in the book, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. I think people really got into this, you know, idea of regrowing uh, produce and scallions were, you know, all the rage. Um, and I was like, oh, you could actually do this with so many, you know, different types of produce. And I, and I realized that most people aren't actually going to do it or they'll do it once but I felt like I want to give people the tools to have that satisfaction of growing something yourself and Mm -hmm. and eating it you know even if you're in a city in a suburb don't have you know don't have a garden um you know you can do it in your windowsill and uh it's free so I thought I I I thought that was just a kind of fun addition Uh yeah well I mean I've been reading about it so it must be a a, on hot topic uh, at the moment of the totally. Uh, um, now, the um, what was I about? I was about to tell you something. Um, well, I mean, you you have a pretty traditional breakdown of of your segments here: uh, snacks and spreads, and um, let's see what where's the glossary? Oh, it's not the glossary. The um, outline of chapters. Um, tell us about how you broke all this down. Yeah, the, it, it's pretty traditional. And I, you know, I had written before I got started on the book, a table of contents, which um, pretty much ended up completely changing um, because I really wanted to make sure that the recipes, you know, that there would be something left over with them and that they could connect to another recipe. So that kind of changed. Um, but, you know, again, I just, I wanted people like, yes, you can use this to, to cut down on waste, but you can also use it in the traditional sense. And I wanted to make sure that it was kind of, you know, and, that anyone could use it uh, regardless of what your intentions were. Right. I mean, you have a lot of, of way beyond the basic thing here is how you make a cheese plate, and then you talk about <laughs> that, yeah, and about how how to um, purchase and, and 
stock your your cheese assortment. Totally. So well, I think something like that is such like you know making a cheese plate. It's like I had it for dinner the other night, and it's like you can really you know use up the ends of what you have lingering in your fridge to make something that looks really exciting. What about meatballs? What about meatballs? Oh, Peter's oh, a master of meatballs. You have a thing. You have a thing about meatballs. I have I can't a. It's called. They they're called really good meatballs, and they are really good. I you know I had to test a bunch of meatballs uh, from from other chefs a few years ago, and you know I kind of came away with like more is more, in terms of flavor for meatballs. So these are really shockful flavor. There's bacon. There's kind of caramelized shallots. Um, there's beef and pork. It, it, they're just they're so, they're so good, and they happen to be gluten free. It was, uh, I think I was out of breadcrumbs, so I used um, I used cornmeal, and they turned out to be so good. And I was like, oh, gluten free. That's a, that's a nice I little like cornmeal. bonus. Yeah, I yeah, like that, that was that was I about about to tell you about my my famous beet veal meatballs, for which I got the recipe from Loeb Brothers, who's. Establishment is like 90th and Madison Avenue, no? Yes, I think. Oh, the most expensive meat shop in the whole world. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, and I, I, I copied it, but then I took out the ground chicken because it made them, yeah. made them too sloppy. Totally. Did they use cornmeal in this? I think they did a little bit, but I went, I went beyond that and used uh, breadcrumbs. Oh, nice. Yes, and I like your your take on, on putting things, just the presentation of it. I mean, you're making things look good, which is half the battle. Um, yes, well, you know, I I both my parents were artists, and I and I went oh, to okay. FI, <laughs> I went to FIT, and I went to a school for fashion before I got into food. Um, so the whole, the visual aspect to me has always been really important. And, you know, I think especially with cookbooks and with food, like if it doesn't look good, no one's going to make it. And if no one makes it, then kind of what's the point? You know, you spent all this time, money, energy on creating something. And if no one makes it, then yeah. You want well, it to look good. The, the, some of the, the presentations are pretty complex. Like I'm looking at, this is totally gorgeous, this panzanella salad with yeah. tomatoes, melon, and pickled mustard seeds. It never <laughs> occurred to me in my wildest dreams after doing being in this industry for so many years that you could actually pickle mustard seeds. Oh, they're so good. The texture is unbelievable. But, you know, that I, mean, I love I mean, I love that photo, and it really pops. But it, it is pretty simple. You know, it's using, you know, I think often with recipes, of course, flavor is paramount, but also about texture and color and how it kind of goes together. Oh, and yeah. I think the panzanella is like a great example of, of that. It, it sure is. I mean, you're very, very uh, hot on, on uh, texture, I noticed, throughout. Yes, yes, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I love texture. I think that's what really makes, you know, makes dishes kind of work. Right. Well, I guess that's true. Um, and you do a lot of do-it-yourself things too. Um, totally. I, I, yeah. Again, I'm. I, I feel remiss. I've been vowing to make my own um, ricotta, 
and then you you carried it a step and I haven't done it you carried a step further and you could make your own ricotta salata which I happen to be a huge fan of so I'm going to oh, try I love that it too yeah. I love it too. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, again, you know, there's a lot of like DIY in, uh, recipes in the book, and you know, you can also use store bought. That's totally fine. But I thought for the for the people that are curious, at least they have the recipe and they they have the option to be able to do it. And I think, you know, some things like corn stock or Parmesan broth, people people don't even think to do to make no i and mean i've so, always wanted to do that with the corn cobs but i never oh never it's actually so good up. it's so good you'll you, i mean do it you, this you, summer. You'll, yeah you've got to you've got to and then just, then using it in the winter oh my god you'll be like oh summer's yeah i just short months away i just actually finished my last uh, frozen my package of frozen sweet corn mm. which now i don't know what to do because that's a component in my black beans um, with corn and avocado. and avocado, yeah. Oh, yum. But it was really good mixture. Yeah, it is. Yum. The other thing I was kind of curious about, well, you, you are on trend as well uh, with the vegetable forward aspect of your book. Um, yes. You present that very, very lucidly in your introduction about how to save uh, animal protein um, for uh, special occasions and and, um, uh, and emphasize more of the vegetables available. Tell us a little about that. Totally. So, you know, I think, again, as I was polling my friends, you know, we were, I, I also asked them a lot of questions about their kind of like eating habits. And I think it's pretty representative of, you know, where we are collectively going, which is that people are trying to eat more, I think so too. you know, vegetarian forward um and i think that while we are trying to do so like if if you are a meat or a fish eater sometimes that is hard that's like okay but what does that actually mean what does a main dish look like if it's all vegetarian or i can do this one day a week but how do i do this multiple days a week so i really wanted to address that and have enough vegetarian options that i was like yeah you can literally just eat vegetarian if you want um and, you know, it's it's really how, I mean, I love meat and fish, um, but I really do try to save them for, you know, uh-huh. not special occasions per se, but not a, not as a nightly or daily thing. Right. Well, that's the trend. I mean, that's what I just read about how um, meat is destroying the um, rainforest, the Amazon rainforest. Terrible. Yes. I mean, exactly. I think there's, you know, there's so many reasons to eat less meat. And, you know, I think if you're also eating less meat and fish, you can maybe spend a little more money to make sure that they are, you know, humanely or sustainably raised or grown. Now, you are in love with walnuts. They run through your butt. <laughs> <laughs> I just made a, I made ramp pesto yesterday with walnuts, and I was like, God, I just really oh, see, love I, them. I, I stopped. Well, at, at one point, the only um, pine nuts that made any sense to me price-wise was Chinese, and I didn't want to—I didn't know what was going to be in these <laughs> because they're coming out of China. So I switched to all walnut, and I think it's just as good. And and they're—you know—I'm like they're affordable. Most people like it's rare that you find someone with like 
I mean, I guess it's a tree nut, but like most people can have walnuts. They're delicious. They're creamy. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough. Yeah. Well, um, I think your section on pasta, beans, and grains is is very good. Um, it, it, again, like you have bucatini with tuna and olives. I mean, that's visually very satisfying as well. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, that's a that's and, a great one. Yeah, and preserved lemon pasta. I mean, I, can, I always have preserved lemon. So, um, is there any? Did you find any kind of surprise? I found one of your uses of, that we usually discard was kind of surprising, but I can't remember. It was a leaf of something, but I can't remember what it was. That sort of was it a leek, a leek top or a fennel, um, the fennel stalk? Oh, the fennel I use all the time, yeah. But the um, but the the leek top might have been it. Yes. I would yes. envision them as being really tough. You know, and that's I I I really was like, why are we discarding them? They're so um, they're delicious. And actually, I mean, I you know incorporate them in a frittata, but you can just saute them. Uh, you know, you can saute the whole leek and kind of just eat that as is. It's delicious. The the only the only thing is is the dirt the dirt the sand the sand I mean you do yeah I I do make a note yes I make a note that you do need to thoroughly wash them yeah yeah they are because you know any bit of sand can kind of ruin a ruin a a meal (laughs) (laughs) you know considering the theme of this of this let's have a leak and sand omelet shall we. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh! Considering the, um, the the direction of the book and and using up the whole plant so forth, I turned a page and and I was just shaken because I thought it was rhubarb. <laughs> it turned out it was charred ruby chard. Oh, <laughs> I hope nobody not... else thinks it's, that they should be eating the uh, leaves of, of rhubarb. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I didn't even think of that. Oh, That's the first thing I thought. Then I realized what that you know, that would be yeah. Oh, that is really. Oh God! I hope no one thinks that. Uh, <laughs> well, don't don't remember your book if they do. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Maybe well, listeners, they, you're going to enjoy this book, and you're going to um, have a whole new approach. Um, I'm, I may even try to brine my my egg yolks because that's sort of appealing. I've never had that. I should try that. Oh, that's a real winner. Yeah, I have to do that one. And um, and, and I laughed about your mother's lentil soup, which is not the... (laughs) But we had had a lentil soup in the family, too. And and when I went off, because my mother was such a big cook, when I went off to school in Michigan... Um, I, I knew how to make what um, filet mignon, uh, chicken with some kind of sauce. I can't remember what it was, and lentil soup. This was my repertoire. So one of my um, <laughs> one of my professors, um, I invited him for lunch at uh, my apartment for lentil soup. And when I tasted it, I'm thinking it's going to be a knockout, a smash hit. And it was like 
pure salt. I did something, <gasps> I don't know what. No. And, and, and so I found myself having to apologize to this um, stuffy professor about the lentil soup, and his reply was, don't mind me, dear. I was raised during the Depression. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so funny. That is so Well, funny. listeners, this, this book is really, it's a good read, and, and it's a, a good cookbook, and it's for a good and it's, it, it promotes a good um, a policy, a lifestyle, um, and, and it's very to the minute also. Again, it's Alexis Deboshnik to the last bite, and you're going to learn a lot from reading this book. And, and mind you, I think you're just going to read your way through it. Alexis, I can't wait for your next one to come out. Let me know Thank what it does. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, indeed. Bye-bye. Bye. That's us for another week. Um, join us again. Same time, same whatever. And until then, bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.